a piece of literature can be timeless, but you can't necessarily hide what's going on in that period of time. And furthermore, that human nature never changes. All of these emotions of jealousy and love and spite and rage, all this stuff, these complex family issues that come up, that doesn't change from when Shakespeare wrote it to today. And I love that about literature. That's Annette Sear, and this is The Stories That Brought You Here, a podcast dedicated to the stories of the people living in and around the Salish Sea. I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and it's my pleasure to get to sit down in conversation with people to hear the stories that brought them to this beautiful part of the world we live in, and also get to hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Annette grew up in Montreal and moved out to the West Coast in her 20s. While living in Vancouver, she was managing a 24-hour restaurant. She'll describe some of those amazing experiences that she had while working there and as well talk about other things that she's seen and experienced while working in the service industry. She'll also go into how important the world of water polo was to her as she was a teenager and young adult in university and give some excellent insight into the sport and what it meant to her. She'll also talk about her involvement in a music program while at university and her love of English literature. All that and more in a absolutely wonderful interview, which I loved doing. And a big part of the reason I loved doing this was because I've shared a lot of conversations with Annette over the years. Specifically, there was one summer we were working together while at a place called Poets Cove, where I still work at and she doesn't. But we shared a number of lunches where I peppered her with questions about her life and she was very gracious about answering them. And I was so happy that we were able to kind of recreate that experience a little bit in this interview. One of the greatest things about this interview I heard upon listening back to it was all the laughter. So much laughter. Annette loves to laugh. I love to laugh. And there was a lot of that in here. So if you love laughter and some enthusiastic storytelling, then I think you're going to love this one. So if this is your first time here, I'd like to say welcome to you. And if you are a returning listener, welcome back. If you want to keep up to date with new episodes, I got a whole slew of ways for you to do that. One common thing I've heard from people over the years is that they kind of forget about the podcast because I don't really do a good job of advertising it or put it out there, which I'm trying to do now. So if you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, you can do that through YouTube now. The page name is The Stories That Brought You Here. There's a Facebook page called The Stories That Brought You Here Again. I'm on Twitter, at Stories Brought. As well, too, you can follow and subscribe through Spotify, through Podbean, and I believe through Apple Podcasts as well, too. All those different ways to do that, you'll find links for that in the show notes down below. There is a whole back catalog of episodes to listen to, so if you like this one and you want to hear more episodes, take a little look-see through the previous interviews because there are so many gems in there. So first, I'm going to give you a little bit of music, and then my interview with Annette Sear. What time did you get up this morning? Uh, well, the dog kind of woke me up at about six. And uh, she's on steroids right now. And well, probably will be for the foreseeable future. But um, they just make her go to the bathroom a lot. So she like woke me up and was like, I gotta go. It's dark. You know, I gotta put her glow. It's that's a whole thing too. She's like got a mask up and collar up and then glow collar up so that I can see where she is in the dark. Oh, damn. It's an ordeal. It's like not just open the door and then call her back. It's like I gotta go out with her because she's special needs. 
Did did you get back to bed or was that the start of your day? I tried. I went back to bed, but I didn't really get back into a sound sleep. I like tossed and turned for a couple hours and I was like, well, that's done. All right. Well, thanks for being here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Okay. We'll probably use that bit to start off with because that was pretty good. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) I love talking about my special needs dog. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So we're here on a Saturday afternoon in uh, a super mild January. It's incredible. Yeah. It's It's, good weather. It's like 10 degrees out there right now. Yeah. It's awesome. Well, Annette, we're going to start off with asking you the famous first question, what brought you to Pender Island? Uh, The short answer is my friend Chris Hall needed help for a weekend. That's the short answer. Um, He had moved here, uh, I guess, the summer before, and um, he was running Sea Ray, which is a big yachting group. Uh, M&P Yachts throws this Sea Ray event at Poets Cove. And a lot of boats come, and it's three days of mayhem, and he didn't really have staff, and he didn't really have any support, and nobody really knew what was going on in the building, and the planning was off. And he kind of put a general SOS to any of his friends in hospitality. My now dear friend Kyle Jones said, yeah, like, we can make that work. So I got on a boat, and I came over here. Having not gone to any of the islands, I'd been living in Vancouver for, I think, four years at the time. I'd never ventured onto a ferry and onto any of the islands. And I turned up here to work for the weekend and I worked really hard and I met some cool people and I fell in love with it. And the following March I moved back and basically been here since. All right. How busy was that weekend? Mayhem. Yeah. It's so crazy. I think the thing that struck me as really interesting is that I just showed up to work and it seemed like people were looking at me to know what to do which I was like, I don't have a problem with taking a leadership role. I've always kind of been that way. So that was okay for me to just jump in and get to doing it. Uh, But I thought that was so strange that nobody seemed to know where the linens were or where the chafing dishes were or what was happening next. And so Chris would, I would see Chris like once an hour or something and be like, I need you to do this next. We've known each other for long enough that he just trusted I would figure it out. And so I did. (laughs) And I'd take people in tow with me. I think one day... They used to do this barbecue out on the dock. I don't know if they still do, but you had to take everything from the kitchen upstairs in Aurora, which is a hike for anybody who knows that property, all the way to the end of the dock. So we had to carry all these tables and these linens and these chafing dishes and this food from the kitchen upstairs across all of the patio down the dock and then back. I think I I walked some 18 kilometers that day. What? Really? (laughs) Yeah. It was crazy. <laughs> it was a crazy day. Okay. Yeah. Well, so that introduction to the island uh, is uh, ocean side, obviously. Yes. And, and so what was your impression those first couple of days where you were working there of, I guess, the location that you were in? And uh, how did you feel about the experience if you had time to look up from all the hard work you were doing? I just thought it was so beautiful. I mean, it's hard not to. If anybody who's seen a sunset at Poets Cove, uh, and if you've traveled other places in the world, it's a pretty hard sunset to beat, you know? Um, So it's really breathtaking. And even, you know, all the years that I've worked on and off at Poets Cove, some sunsets, it doesn't matter if you're working or a guest, everyone stops to look because it's so stunning. You know, it takes your breath away. So I fell in love with that. I always, and uh, some people hate the windy roads when they move here. I loved that. <laughs> I just thought this is great. It's like straight out of a Grand Theft Auto or something. Like, you know, it's like out of a race game, video game, just ripping through. Yeah. I can't really take credit for that. I dated a guy who came to visit once and he was like, why didn't you tell me the roads were like a video game? I was like, yeah, that puts, that's exactly what it is. You 
describe that accurately. That's funny. I was talking to somebody a few months ago visiting from Alberta, and they said their favorite thing about it was the windy roads, because mm-hmm. all the roads in Alberta where they lived are super straight. Yeah. And I was like, wow, you like the windy roads. Yeah, it's like engaged driving. Yeah, yeah. it totally is. Yeah. Well, uh, except for the potholes on some roads, the windy roads are great and fantastic. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So, so you had that brief experience and then you, uh, you went back home and then you came back to live on Pender later. Yes. At that time, I um, was moving to Courtney to help some friends of mine who had just bought a house. I had had a seasonal work in Vancouver. And when the season ended, I was like, oh, I'm going to come be in Courtney. So I came here for the weekend. And then I think two weeks later, I moved up to Courtney. I was there for the winter. And then I moved here in the following March. I guess that would be March of 2016. Okay. And so what was the uh, the impetus for moving back in 2016? To Pender? Yeah. Well, I had just been here for the weekend and fell in love with it. Like, I was here for May long weekend. Yeah, yeah. And then I went to live in Courtney, and I, that whole time I was in Courtney, my intention was to move here for this the summer season and when things start kicking off. So I moved here in March. And how was that first summer and first year for you when you moved? Because you know, I think we all have an expectation of what things are going to be like when we make decisions in our life. What was your expectation versus the reality of what you experienced? Uh, well, for me, I was kind of coming out of a a pretty bad relationship. And uh, so I had this sense of like renewed liberty is pretty wild summer for me. Uh, my nickname amongst my group of friends that I made that summer and became loud and naked <laughs> at parties. I just, just, I just went wild. I just went wild. I felt really free and I felt really good about being here and I met really good people and I had a lot of fun. I worked hard uh, and I'm, I had a lot of fun. I partied hard. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> Sounds great. Okay. Loud and naked was your loud nickname. Loud and naked okay. became the nickname. All right. <laughs> Well, congratulations on that. Not too many people get a uh, fabulous nickname like that. Yeah, so my mom would be embarrassed, but <laughs> it was, it's actually quite innocent. Like, I, I remember I, I did start dating someone that summer, and he was like, "Why does this? Why do we have to go out and you get loud and you want to you know take off your clothes?" And I'm like, "Because I'm fine. I'm not ashamed of who I am right now. I don't feel like I feel like I was in a cage, and now I feel like I broke out of it. And if I'm at a party and we decide we're going hot tubbing, like I don't feel bad about it. I was born in this body; it's fine. That was my thing. Like you know, it's not. I just was like, I felt like going back to the way you come out of the womb. Wait, <laughs> that's it. Just, I was a loud kid in the nursery, and I was naked when I was born. Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, way to go, Annette. I guess you made you made a lot of friends that summer. <laughs> sure. Yeah, okay. I did. I did. <laughs> So you didn't scare people off, you drew people in. I guess. Okay. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> so, uh, and then you've been living here ever since 2016. Yeah, I took that, that after that summer, I did go to Rosslyn for a winter to work at uh, Red Mountain, which I loved because I had never done that ski mountain thing. I wanted to put that on the bucket list. Okay. And then I came back and I've been here ever since. Okay. All right. And so you've been working in the hospitality industry for the most part? Or? Mostly, yeah. I did... Um, when I came back, I did a full another full season at Poets, I think. Or no, I got a job at Browning, uh, managing the marina, which was interesting because I didn't know anything about boats. But I was offered a job that was uh, year-round and had a salary, and I knew I wanted to be on Pender, so I took it. And uh, I had also taken my kayaking course because I was going to teach kayaking that summer. But once I got offered a salaried position, I just stayed at Browning. And then I did bounce back to Poets in sales and marketing. But, of course, that's still in hospitality, selling weddings and uh, business events and stuff like that and then I moved 
uh, back into the restaurant at Poets, and then I was doing construction, and now I'm a realtor. Hey! <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay, that's a lot of uh, different hats that you've been wearing yes. since uh, 2016. Yes. It's kind of amazing, actually, and <laughs> and kind of common, actually, for Ireland as well, too, right? Like, a lot of people have a lot of different uh, experiences and jobs that they have along the way. So, how did you find yourself in Courtney? Um, Courtney's a really pretty place and I did make a couple of really good friends there. The, unfortunately, the person who I moved there, uh, to help with their mortgage and I lived with, I'm no longer friends with, but I did make some really great friends there who I'm still in contact with. And I was working in hospitality when I was there at kind of like a blue collar pub that has like an old school traditional pub menu and three different types of lucky on the menu because... It's an island beer. It was it was a kind of interesting experience for me because I had been in Vancouver, which I think is a little bit more liberal and has a little bit more of an art side, an environmentalist thing going on. And Courtney Comox is uh, military. You know, there's a lot of people there who are military. And it's very conservative in a lot of ways. It's super different. The mentality is super different. But I did. I liked it a lot. Yeah. I like Courtney a lot, too. I've been up there a bunch in the mm-hmm. last uh, five, seven years or so. And I think it's amazing. I think it's such a beautiful, beautiful place. It's really nice. And so you were you were serving in a blue-collar bar? Yeah, the Whistle Stop. It's still there. Yeah. Uh, it's got a liquor store attached to it. The old man, Barry, uh, still running it. Very nice man. He was a good boss. We butt heads all the time, but I think we both enjoyed it secretly. <laughs> um yeah no it's it was a it was a cool spot they did wing night twice a week which for anybody who works as a server anywhere wing night is like the dreaded evening because it's you're touching people's saliva all night and it's like a lot of back and forth with these plates it's like uh it always reminds me of that scene in the lion king where they're in the elephant graveyard that's what wing night is like the hyenas and the elephant bones (laughs) So um, they had two wing nights there, uh, and I was on Mondays and Thursdays, I think, and I was pretty strong. I'm a turnover server by nature. When I work, I like to work fast, and so I would inevitably get scheduled on both of those nights because I could handle a large section. I move really quickly. Uh, So those strange nights there that I worked there, and then they had this house band on Friday and Saturday nights that three weekends of the month it was the exact same band and they played the exact same set list on friday and saturday night oh no and so sometimes a song will come on the radio and i'm like immediately i'm back at the whistle stop pub and i like can hear the rest of the set list coming like it's so funny to me yeah it's it's just ingrained in your head chiseled in there (laughs) i've never heard the term a turnover server what does that mean Turnover service is like the complete opposite of fine dining. Fine dining is like long and drawn out. There's a lot of formalities that happen in the engagement between like a server and their table. And turnover service is like working in a diner. You're flipping tables. The idea is volume. It's not about a long drawn out experience. It's about feeding people comfort food and then moving on to the next people. You just... You're just getting people fed as fast as you can. Okay. Yeah. Prior to that experience, had you served before or was that your Yeah, first? no, I had. Um, I used to manage a 24-hour diner in Vancouver called Lucy's Eastside Diner. Okay. Um, I think it's still there, but I think it's changed hands since I was there. So that was kind of the place where the first time that I really worked as a server full-time was that place. I had dabbled a little bit in service when I lived in Montreal 
But that place, I quit my like sales job and I was like, I'm going into hospitality. And my sister was like, don't do it. And I was like, oh, I'm I'm doing it. <laughs> I need to break free from the corporate world. Okay, so it was a 24-hour restaurant. Yeah. So what does that look like from the side of uh, somebody managing it? Well, managing a restaurant is not a very, uh, what's the word I should use? It's a thankless job. <laughs> it's pretty gruesome. Yeah. It doesn't really make a lot of time for you or the things that are important for you outside of a restaurant. A restaurant takes a lot out of people who work in that industry. Uh, I think that's taken for granted by a lot of people who've never done it before, but it really will take it right out of you because, first of all, your whole purpose is to make sure that other people are having a good time, and that doesn't matter if you're having a good time or not. Um, which can be pretty hard, but it's just, it's a lot. So a regular restaurant is a lot and there's a lot of work that goes into everything that happens before the doors open and everything that happens after the doors close, this place doesn't close. <laughs> so phone calls in the middle of the night, or in my case, I often had to work the night shift because we didn't have a lot of very strong people. And those were often the busiest shifts. So I would end up working, you know, a night shift Thursday, Friday, Saturday, but that didn't exclude me from sometimes having to work the breakfast shift right through on Sunday morning because someone didn't show up, you know. So it was a lot. It was very demanding, but it was also a lot of fun. I mean, I met one of my best friends working there. We worked there Friday, Saturday nights. I'd start at 1030 and she would start at 11. We'd work through till 530 and 6 in the morning. Wow. And we would just rock it. And watching the different types of people that come through a place like that, like it's a shift, right? So if you're there at 1030, you might have students who are coming in to have a snack before, you know, or they've been studying or they're going to come study for a bit and they just, or they want to have a milkshake before they go out on a date or whatever it is. Yeah. And then that's kind of goes on until about 1230. And then the crowd changes from 1230 until 330 in the morning. It's a different thing. You're dealing with different creatures in those hours who have maybe been out all day drinking and they come in, they got to slam a burger before they go to bed or they've been clubbing all night at 3.30 in the morning. They don't even know what they want. You have to tell them what they want. <laughs> uh, and then that shifts into the people who've been serving them at the clubs and the bouncers and the strippers and the security guards. Those guys, well, they all come in at, you know, four in the morning and they just want quiet. Like you change the music at that time. You put on like lo-fi and let people just sit there and eat their eggs in peace. And then six o'clock, it's like construction guys. Like it just, you see all these different types of cool people come through. It was a lot of fun. That's super interesting. Was there any point during that shift where you were sort of dreading the next group that was coming in or was just the the novelty of uh, how it was changing was great? There was always like a, there's like a half hour of like where it's really hairy, where all the bars close at once and everybody shows up at once. But we always managed that pretty well. And if the kitchen got backed up, we'd like put on like Disney tunes or something. You get, there was only a 35 seat restaurant. So we'd like get people singing, like we'd sing along stuff. Wow. We'd just start getting people going and people are excited and you just make sure that they have like milkshakes and some water or pop to drink while the kitchen catches up. Um, so we did a lot of that, but I would say that the highlight of the day was always when the service industry people came in, you know, around four in the morning. So you had that to look forward to, even if it was really crazy busy, like, Hey, in half an hour, the people who come through here yeah. are going to understand what we've just been through. <laughs> and we're all just going to have this mutual respect and sit here and talk calmly, tell each other our battle stories. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like, hilarious yeah. so would you lead the sing-alongs or we have before yeah my, my girlfriend and i sarah man we had fun so sarah's like a very very fun and charismatic person and she knew so many people in vancouver so when we would 
work together, a lot of the times people would come to see her. And there'd be like a lineup around the block sometimes. Wow. And we would like be managing people from the door. How many are you? Oh, you're four. Okay, I'm just give me a minute. And you move people along. Shuffle down two. We're gonna put these guys in here. And you just you're playing Tetris while you're serving people and making drinks and clearing tables. And then yeah, sometimes it just get crazy. We like turn on yeah, I had a guy who used to come in all the time and I'd be like, What should we do tonight? And he'd be like, Let's do Disney. So you like go to the back and you switch the music and like people you don't really need to prompt them to start singing when people hear like the Little Mermaid, they just start singing, you know? <laughs> it's pretty easy. Yeah. You sing with them and it keeps them calm with their, for their food. <laughs> That's pretty hilarious, isn't it? Seriously, right? And so, like, you're working in this situation and, like, what I'm hearing is that you guys made it fun, right? So yeah. instead of it being, like, a slog and being resentful about having to be there, it's like, oh, how can we make this enjoyable and how to get through this experience and, and laugh? Um, I don't know what the policy is on swearing on your podcast. Oh, go for it. So we, (laughs) we were notoriously, we would say to people if it started to get rowdy and we'd be like, it's going to be 20 minutes for a table. And then we would look at each other and say, and if you don't like it, we would high kick and say, get the fuck out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it was like this picture of me actually on the internet. I I often wore like it was kind of a fifty style diner diner, and I did I often wore like kind of rockabilly. So I'd wear like fishnets with like jean shorts, and I'd have cut off shirt or whatever, and my hair done kind of fifty style. And there's this picture of me that a customer took one night where he got me to change shirts with him. And I'm kicking, I'm high kicking and pointing at the camera. And it's like kind of an ode to this thing that we used to do if people were getting rowdy and being obnoxious. And he'd say, if you don't like it. Get the fuck out! And we do this high kick. It was just kind of our little call, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, wait, where was this on Edmond Street? No, it's on Main. Main and 11th. Main and 11th. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. And so a 24-hour diner on Main and 11th. Yeah. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. Yeah. Awesome. How long did you work there for? Two and... Two years, two and a half years, maybe. Two and a half years. Yeah. Wow. And okay, so were you the manager that whole time? Uh, I wasn't when I first started working there, but I, that probably only lasted about six months. They had like gone through a couple of managers and they didn't really have anybody. And I just kind of stepped up to the plate and it ended up working out for everybody. I had no experience running a restaurant. I didn't know what I was doing, but I liked people. I like people and organization. I'd managed other things, yeah. which is a lot like many of my management positions. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'll figure it out. Yeah. Well, <laughs> welcome to the club. I think all of us feel like that at certain points, right? Yeah. Imposter syndrome. So was two and a half years enough for you? Or did you start burning out from those uh, all those late nights or graveyard shifts, essentially? Yeah, graveyard shifts were tough. Um, well, I think I had this conversation with a girlfriend of mine recently who was talking about feeling kind of overwhelmed that they weren't sure if they were doing the right thing in the position that they were working in and they were worried what other people thought about that and and they were stressed about that and I said well don't be stressed about that because like I just said to you you often don't know what you're doing when you get into a new position you have to figure it out Mm -hmm. Uh, I said the real thing is when it stops serving you when you you realize that this isn't just today I'm not in a good mood. It's not going well for me anymore. This isn't serving me anymore. I'm not learning anything. I'm frustrated. I'm in a corner. Whatever the circumstances are, you have to be able to recognize that. And I think that I left the diner at a right time for me. You know, it was a time for me to move on. And so I did. 
You know, I think a hard thing for people is that it's easy to recognize that, but it's difficult to actually make the jump and get out of the situation that you're in. Is there anything that you were able to do to uh, encourage yourself to actually get the momentum to make the change? Well, actually, yeah. So there was a time while I was managing where uh, the owner's sister was quite sick with cancer. And unfortunately, she did end up dying. And so the family was very hands-off during that time. And I had put in a lot of time to keep the business running and going as it was. And um, we had a sit-down after she had passed and he was getting more involved. And he wanted to talk about potentially opening up a restaurant in Victoria under the same kind of idea of, you know, a 50s, 24-hour diner. And he had someone who had approached him and he had a great location, a great opportunity. And he asked if I would move. And I had said to him, I would move, but only if I'm your business partner in it. For me, it was like, I'm not just going to move myself to manage another restaurant somewhere else without skin in the game. I wanted to be able to move to the next level. And um, he wasn't really receptive to that. He didn't want to go into business in that regard. The idea of us being business partners was not something that he was interested or ready to jump into. And that for me was like, well, if you're not willing to invest with me, then you're probably really not that interested in investing in me. And I have a future to build. So it was kind of, that was for me, was the time to pull the plug. Okay. On. Yeah. What, what was your next move after that, after coming to that realization? Well, at that time, I had been working at Bridges on Granville Island. Also, like I transitioned into that. It was a season, summer season was coming up and they're like crazy busy in the summer. It's a fantastically run business. It too has changed hands since then. Um, but when I worked there, anyhow, I can't speak to today. It was the best restaurant still to this day that I've ever worked for. Really? In the way that it was run. The management team was exceptionally professional. The systems they had in place, the support they had in place, the kitchen staff, the, their chef, uh, I always call him Boss Ross, still incredible to this day. Is one of my favorite people I've ever worked with in a kitchen. Uh, efficient and kind and yeah, just a great guy, led a great team. So I loved working there. So that's what I transitioned into. I was there. I did that a couple summers. And in the winters, I'd sometimes pick up at Lucy's. I worked at a pool hall. And then after my second summer, I think, at Bridges, I wasn't going to be staying on in the winter there. And that's when I moved to Courtney. All right. And then you mentioned earlier that you moved to uh, Courtney from Montreal. So that No, is... I was in Vancouver. Pardon yeah, me. Excuse me. Time, right. Yeah. But Before you... Vancouver, I was in Montreal. There we go. Okay. So yeah. you mentioned earlier that uh, you moved out to the West Coast from Montreal. Yeah. And so that's where you were uh, born and raised? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, maybe let's take a, a jump uh, three time zones to the East Coast in Montreal here. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, what, what, uh, whereabouts in Montreal were you born? I grew up in the West Island. I was born in Point Claire. And my family home, which is still, my parents still live in at least half of the year, uh, is in Roxborough, which is a little suburb um, in the West Island of Montreal. And you were growing up there in the 80s? Yeah, I was born in 85. Okay, excellent. And so uh, what was what was life like growing up in Montreal? Great place. We grew up in a great neighborhood, really. We were really great friends with all of our neighbors. My parents had really great relationships. So it's very much that mentality of a village to raise a child. There's nothing that we could get into without someone my parents knew knowing that we got into it. So that was great. You know, there was a lot of kids, um, kind of groups of kids the same age. Um, we played outside late at night. We would play, you know, um, hide and go seek tag. My dad's pickup truck would be bass. Or we play, um, what was the other one? We used to play Bloody Mary, I think they called it. I don't remember. I was so young. I'd just run around with my brother and sister. It was one of those things. My parents were like, go outside and play with them. <laughs> Get out. 
<laughs> we yeah, we had a lot of fun, and uh, all of our neighbors were kind of close by. And if I was out playing and it was dinner time, my dad like had a whistle you could hear from like a block radius. It was time to come home for dinner. Was the whistle would come out, so that was kind of it was good. And so was it uh, French language speaking, English language, or my dad is French from the Maritimes, and my mom grew up in Montreal, like pre FLQ, in an English family. Okay, um, she speaks French, although she's not very confident with her accent. She speaks French and understands it quite well. Um, so we spoke mostly English in our neighborhood that we grew up in. Most of our neighbors were English, and most of us went to schooling in immersion programs. So all of us were pretty fluent in French, but. Because we spoke mostly English at home with our parents, we spoke English to each other. And that community now is far more French than it ever was when I lived there. But that's as a direct result of language laws in Quebec. So from kindergarten on, it was French immersion? Yeah. So the way my immersion program worked is uh, kindergarten one, two were almost entirely in French. Mm -hmm. You got one hour of English a week. And then from that point on, everything is split 50-50. They pick subjects to teach in French and subjects to teach in English. And all of my education until I graduated high school was 50% French, 50% English. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. I see. I went to French immersion too, and I had to uh, get out in grade six because it was one hour of English a week. And my English was so poor that I was actually going to fail. And so uh, my mom uh, made a a negotiation with the principal and said, okay, if you don't fail him, and then he can uh, move on to grade six and go into the English program and be done with the immersion. Anyway, yeah, but that's uh, because to me, that sounds pretty helpful if you're doing 50-50 after grade two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you're growing up in Montreal, mm-hmm. and uh, I kind of want to get a little bit of a, uh, a, a snapshot of what the neighborhood looks like a little bit here, because I lived in Montreal briefly, and there's a lot of brick, right? But yeah. um, in the neighborhood that you lived in, were there a lot of apartment buildings or individual houses? Sub- just suburbia, like sidewalks and pavement, and a lot of the houses in the neighborhood I grew up in, and now again, it's changed a lot. But when I was there... The house size to the size of the lot wasn't, I guess the bylaws must have been different. So the houses were quite a bit smaller, so people had nice-sized lawns still, which were quite kept and manicured for the most part. Um, My parents' house and a lot of the houses surrounding were mostly made up of brick because it was the preferred thing to build with in the 50s and late 40s. So, yeah, so their house was brick, and a lot of our neighbors' houses were brick, and they would have, you know, siding in some parts to kind of offset. But, yeah, yeah, very, very suburban. (laughs) <laughs> Very suburban, okay. Yeah. I was home in May and I hadn't been home and stayed at my parents' house at that time of year where I could just like get out and go walking and it was warm. And I went walking and I walked to my old elementary school and all the parks we used to hang out when we were kids. And I was like, God, these roads are so wide and these lawns are so kept. Because here, I mean, I don't know, we, we live in the woods. So most of our driveways aren't paved and you know, let the trees compost and do what they do. You know, there's not a whole lot of keeping no. in the same way that they do in the suburbs. <laughs> no, I, I can't even think of one manicured lawn on Pender Island, actually, let alone a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you said that it was a really uh, great neighborhood to grow up in and that yeah. uh, it was it was neighbors kind of looking out for each other. That sounds like a pretty nice experience. And it was, yeah. Yeah, kind of common for that time as well, too. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's interesting. So I live with a um, young girl now. She's seven. She was three when we moved in together, or two and a half. And um, we try and sit down at the dinner table and have dinner as a family, a couple of nights a week, at least sit down and everybody talk and slow down. Mm-hmm. And I said that to someone recently that we sit at the table and they're like, God, my kids get up and everybody eats in their room. Nobody sits at the table. But that's how we grew up. If you were home, 
then you came to dinner and sat at the table. And it wasn't just like only on Sunday nights. If you weren't out doing a sport or an extracurricular activity and you were home for dinner, we sat down at the table and we ate together. And it's just kind of that traditional family upbringing. I don't know if it's a baby boomer thing or or what, but... um, we don't see as much of it these days. Okay, lucky well, to have it. Who was who was sitting at the table at uh, when you were growing up? Who was there? Let's let's uh, hear a little bit about your parents and uh, your siblings. Yeah. Uh, my mom and my dad. My mom was an educator, so my mom uh, when my sis- when my brother was born, my mom stopped working to raise my brother and my sister, and she basically didn't go back to work till my sister started school, and she was back working part time, and she got pregnant with me five years later. She was at that time she wasn't teaching; she was teaching aerobics. And so she did that the whole nine months she was pregnant with me. And for a couple of years after I was born, she was teaching aerobics. And then she got back into education. And she spent the rest of her career doing that. She taught and then she got her master's in uh, administrative education. She became a principal on that. She did her whole career in that. And my dad owned a small business, Fasteners. And he was born and raised in New Brunswick. Actually, I guess he was technically born on the Quebec side, but spent most of his first 12 years in New Brunswick and then off to boarding school and so on, uh, which was a strange thing that, that his family did. Yeah, my dad hasn't lived at home since he was 12. Can you imagine 12 years old, they send you away to school and then you just never really live in your parents' house ever again? No, I can't imagine it's that. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. I'm sure there's probably like little bits of time where he did, but like he went away to school a couple times and, you know, he was away for school from boarding school. So yeah, he didn't really live full time in his parents' house from the age of 12. Um, and family was super important to my dad because his parents were divorced and I think that really affected him. So he was a very, very present father. Both my parents were very present, loving people. And I have my brother who's seven years older than me, my sister who's five years older than me. And yeah. Okay. And that's the uh, the baby of the family. The baby of the family. The baby of the family. All right. Uh, and just to ask, what is your mom's name? Barbara. And your dad? Guy. Okay. Guy and Barbara. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Because that's kind of what this uh, podcast is about a little bit as well, too, is just getting people's histories. And I always right. like hearing about people's parents because that's one of the stories that uh, brought you here is your parents. So what were you into when you were becoming a teenager living in Montreal? What were your hobbies that you had? By the time I was a teenager, I mean, I grew up in the aquatic world in general. Um, in the West Island of Montreal, there's a really, really high population of outdoor pools, public outdoor pools or semi-private outdoor pools. So they're kind of subsidized by communities, but people pay for private memberships, a couple hundred bucks for the season to have their family have access to these pools. So I don't know if it's like the less prestigious version of like a country club, but we grew up at the pools. My parents became a member at the pool I grew up at, Glenmore Pool, uh, in 84, and I was born in 85. And until I was 16 and became a lifeguard and had to go work at a different pool, I spent every summer at that pool. All right. And there's a lot of kids that I grew up with in that environment who I'm still friends with that, you know, I've known since I was in diapers, really. For the summer season, they're open. You know, we would open at the beginning of June if the weather was permitting and open through until school starts, September long weekend. And uh, had all four aquatic programs, so swimming and synchronized swimming, diving and water polo. And by the time I was a teenager, I'd I'd been involved in lots of other stuff growing up and skiing and dancing and that kind of thing. But by the time I was a teenager, I was pretty interested in water polo. And I dove into that, (laughs) pun pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, before we get to the water polo, which I know is a a big component of uh, a part of your life there. So can you describe what this pool looked like? Like how big it was, how close it was to your home? Mm Mm-hmm. I used to bike there once I was old enough to bike there on my own. And it probably took me like 
15 minutes to bike there, maybe less. I don't know. It's hard to t- tell now thinking about it, what that age is. There's maybe like a, like three kilometers from my parents' house or something like that. And it was, is actually, this one's kind of an interesting pool because it's a little bit hidden in its location. Um, that you can't really see it from any of the major roads that it's there. There's like a fire department and then there's like a city works building and this really obscure parking lot. And what's flanked on the other side is like a cemetery. So you can't see it and you have to know it's there and you drive into this weird parking lot and all the way at the end, there's this big building because there's also a curling club there and then this pool. There's a lot of green space at the pool that I grew up at. And the pool is an L-shaped pool. So one side of the L is a 25-meter lap pool, which is the shallow end. And then there's an additional portion that makes the bottom of the L, which is the deep end. Um, yeah. That sounds really beautiful, actually. It, it sounds like all, all the green space around there. It reminds me of a pool that uh, is where I grew up as, as well, too. There's a huge park space around it and uh, fond memories, fond memories of that. But I didn't spend all my time there like you did. So you would be going there all the time as yeah. a kid and hanging out there, right? So you'd yeah. be meeting your friends and hanging out. Yeah, I think especially in the year 2000, there were uh, – so they had this leadership program at the pool, which is kind of like it feeds into the other pools in that when you're a leader, you start learning the skills that you're going to need to later become a lifeguard. So basic pool maintenance. Um, We would have shifts where we had to sit at the front gate and check people's membership as they came in or take shifts in the um, snack bar selling candy and treats to people. But, you know, maintenance shift in the morning where we had to come and clean all the skimmer baskets or help people vacuum the pool, the lifeguards vacuum the pool. So just kind of this training program in a way, Mm -hmm. Uh, help with swimming lessons, you know, because at that point, a lot of us by the age of 15, we've gone through all of the swimming programs in the morning, but we would come to the pool anyways and help with all the younger kids swimming lessons and assist the lifeguards. Mm -hmm. And so in 2000, there were 30 of us in the leaders program. And it's a lot. (laughs) So there was a lot of us. Uh, And some of us had been members there since we were kids and we'd known each other forever. And then we were all really involved in that program. And we would, you know, go to the pool first thing in the morning. Often we had synchro swimming in the morning or water polo practice in the morning. So we'd be there at eight in the morning and we wouldn't leave until they kicked us out at night, you know. And then sometimes we'd go to someone's house and watch a movie, all of us together. Those parents, man, I tell you. They were good people because you would have 30 teenagers in your basement eating chips and being loud and weird watching terrible movies like American Pie. <laughs> That's a lot of kids. 30 is a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. There were a lot of us. Yeah. It sounds like that uh, in terms of looking for a job, you're like, why would I want a job anywhere else? In like, pool, yeah. Yeah, I get to hang out at the pool. And so you got involved in water polo. And for those people listening who don't know much about water polo, does it involve underwater horses or how does this work exactly? <laughs> like, what is water polo? I think that the best way to kind of describe it would be like soccer in the water with your hands. Okay. So you have a net on either end with a goaltender. And there's seven people on each side in the water. That includes your goalie. And uh, it's very physical. You're not allowed to touch the bottom. You're also not allowed to touch the ball with two hands. Only the goalie can touch the ball with two hands. Uh, And there's constant physical pressure. So it's a really very, very physically demanding sport. Okay. And so what drew you to the sport of water polo? (sighs) I'm a a terribly slow swimmer. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I grew up in the pool system, and uh, I have friends like who have sw- swam and trained with people who have gone to the Olympics. It's very hard to get to the Olympics as a swimmer, just to be clear. It was a very, very competitive individual sport. But I know people who trained with Olympians, and they were all great swimmers. And I was never fast, but I'm really physical. So... For me, in the summer when we would have to participate as in the leadership program, you had to participate in at least two of the aquatic programs to be a leader. Okay. And um, I hated swim team. I, n- I hated racing. Swimming racing to me, not just because I was slow, it never made sense to me uh, to just like chase a wall and chase your own best time. I hated it. And I was always in last place. So <laughs> I, uh, I decided to... Um, I decided to focus on water polo and uh, synchronized swimming. I dove a a bit too, but my brother was a diver and he was so good at it that it was like really hard to imagine being that good at diving. (laughs) So I focused on synchronized swimming and water polo and I really, really liked water polo. And there was a boy that I really liked who played in the winter and that's when I started playing club because I wanted to be able to see him a little bit more even if it was just in passing at the pool. So I decided to play winter water polo and then it just became a lifestyle. It wasn't co-ed, though. Like no. he was all right. No, but we would have to pass each other inevitably, and we would travel together as teams if we were ch- going to tournaments and stuff. We there would you end go. up on the same boats and staying in the same hotels and stuff like that. I say boats. I've been living on the island too long. It was a bus. It was a bus. <laughs> it wasn't a ferry. Holy moly! <laughs> we were on the same boat together. So funny. So uh, you're uh, moving forward in in water polo as the years go by. Like, mm-hmm. what sort of experiences did you have? Sounds like there was travel involved and competition and you took it very seriously it sounds like yes it was very a very huge part of my life I think I would argue that some of the best friends that I have in my life today are people that I played water polo with who I've been through lots with uh kind of an interesting side story to this is some of the girls that I played water polo with and these are not some of these are not some of my closest friends but girls that I did train with are currently suing water polo Canada and a couple of the coaches who coached me and my friends when we were growing up um for abuse and um we dealt with a lot which made a lot of our friendships really strong it's like kind of the sad side of the sport we really really enjoyed it and I was very dedicated to it and loved it but there was a lot of verbal abuse that we took on when we played that now, looking back as an adult, be like, oh, my God, if I was a parent and I knew that the coaches were speaking to my child that way, my 14-year-old daughter or 15-year-old son or whoever, mm-hmm. the plug would be pulled so fast. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievably unacceptable the way that we were spoken to and the way that we were treated. Wow. So um, that's the downside of it. But I loved the sport and I loved the camaraderie. And I still love it. One of the things that I miss the most about living in the city is that I don't have access to an indoor pool 24-7 or 365 anyway. That I can't just go and go for a swim or find a recreational team that I can play with because it was so such a big part of my life. I was in the water six, sometimes seven days a week, depending on what was going on, for six to eight months of the year. I remember friends in high school meeting up with friends after high school who were like, do you remember watching this show in high school? And I was like, no, I didn't have time. I didn't watch TV. I was in the pool. Seriously. Oh, yeah. And people are like, remember the OC? And I'm like, well, I know of it. I never watched it. How could I watch it? Wow. I was training and doing schoolwork. I needed to graduate high school and I was in the pool two hours at least every night, you know, so... 
Yeah. Well, okay, first of all, thanks for sharing the part about uh, your fellow teammates suing about abuse. That uh, it sounds terrible. I don't mm-hmm. want to just skim over that. Um, that sucks. That really sucks. And and uh, it's it's cool that we're moving into a different time mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, those things are recognized as not being acceptable. And yeah. uh, I think it's good. I think it's a good thing that, um, you know, people are taking a look in the past and um, possibly holding some people accountable for actions and, and uh, moving forward in a better way. I had someone ask me recently, they're like, well, do you think it's really fair that if it was okay then that now all these years later that these guys are being held accountable for it? I said, well, if not now, then when? If we don't make an example of someone, I I hate to put it that way, but if you don't stop the buck somewhere and say this isn't okay and it wasn't okay then and it's not okay now, when, when do you do it? Yeah. You know, a lot of us have a lot of mixed feelings about this lawsuit because while while we recognize the abuse that we went through, it's like so many years later and there's been so much that went on and not everybody's being included in the lawsuit, but everybody was abused pretty equally, I would say. So, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting anyway. It's interesting. We'll see what pans from it. Yeah, and the relationships that you forged along the way with uh, with your teammates there, and uh, you said that they they last to today and uh, having mm-hmm. those experiences. So uh, let, maybe let's just get into a bit of the nuts and bolts about the experiences you had in the water. Uh, yeah. So, like, what what was a typical day or week looking like with uh, you not even able to be watching the OC? <laughs> Really? Seriously? You missed all that? How much time were you in the pool? A lot. We, you know, well, it's just that you finish school and I take the city bus home and maybe I'd be home at like four or four thirty and then I might have, I got to eat, especially when you're an athlete. It's like, I remember in my uh, graduating year of high school, one of my teachers asking me, pulling me aside after class and asking if I was eating because I was training so hard, I'd lost so much weight so quickly. And I didn't even realize, I don't think that I had lost all that weight, but I said, God, I can't stop eating. I eat like a horse. Like I have two lunches a day. (laughs) Then I go home and I stuff my face and then I train and I drive my friend Nadia home and her mom feeds me. It's the biggest perk of driving her home. (laughs) Like her mom stuffs so much food in my face. We ate so much. We were so, but yeah, so we go to school and you come home from school and you maybe take a nap because often you're exhausted when you start school because we train often from either from 8.30 to 10.30 at night or 9 till 11. Wow. And your body is still growing. All, like swim team and synchronized swimming always got the better time slots at the pool. Water polo was always the last to get the pick of time. And the younger kids would train earlier. So we got 9 to 11 at night a lot of the time. And we would alternate with the men's team. We might be able to get the slightly earlier slot, maybe 7.30, maybe. On a good week, we'd get one of those shifts. But so you're in the pool and... Then you get home and you're wired because you've been exercising for two hours. You can't sleep. Yeah. So then when you wake up in the morning to go to school, you're exhausted and you just repeat. So how old are you at this point? Uh, 15, 16. Okay. Yep. All right. And so when you talk about training, it's two hours in the pool. Uh, An hour and a half to two hours in the pool. Usually we'd start uh, with a pretty vigorous swim set. We'd start with a warm up and then a lot of swimming um, because there's a lot of it in the sport. And that would not just include um, swimming like strokes. There's a lot of specific strokes to water polo that we would do that are part of the training to help build your core and your legs and then do a lot of leg sets, a lot of like treading water, jumping out of water for, you know, you might do, you might do a, a thousand meters of leg sets in a night and a night that your coach was particularly wanting to, to drive it home that you needed to work on your legs, which was always my favorite because I can't swim with a dam, but 
Um, <laughs> I can tread water. I, I could move like a hot dam. The only time that I could finish sets in the time that were given to us, because they often do timed sets, uh, is if they were leg sets. It was the only time that I could come in and some of the girls who were like later go to represent Team Canada, it's the only time I could keep up, keep up with them is if I was doing a leg set. I remember my coach, John, standing on the side of the pool and we were doing a timed like 50 meter swim and it was several sets of 50 meters. So you might do like eight sets of 50 meters on, you might start the first two at 50 seconds and the next two at 45 and the next two at 40 and the next two at 35 or something. That's an example. Early in the season, it might be that. It might be shorter times as the season goes on. And these girls are doing 50 on 28 and I can do at my fittest, maybe 50 on 34, which in swimming is like a million years. Those seconds are a long time in swimming. So I'm like, touch and go, touch and go. These girls are getting a break touch and go and i remember john standing on the edge of the pool hey seer i look up if you get out and run you might make it <laughs> dang that one stung john i remember it to this day yeah. so okay when when uh it's game on because i've mm-hmm. watched water polo on tv mm-hmm. how physical is it in the pool 100% always physical. A lot of grabbing and there's a lot of kicking, a lot of kicking. <laughs> Some, a lot of, um, you can manipulate a person's body pretty well by just pushing them around at their hip level, but also there's like a lot of bathing suit grabbing and yeah, using someone's hip to push off to get a little bit of leverage. There's been known to be fist fights at times. It's very rare because what the refs can't see under the water. It's like it didn't happen. Totally. So most of the really physical stuff happens under the water. But if you successfully drive someone crazy enough to hit you out of the water, you've won because now they're going to get kicked out of the game and you have now an advantage because you've just lost that player for the game. So Okay. And is it like soccer where they get a red card and they're ejected? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, you can have three major fouls and be ejected from the game yeah. or you can do something that warrants being thrown out of the game right away. How many ejections did you have in your career, Annette? I would never count them. I don't think I was ever thrown out of a game. Uh, maybe. Maybe fouled out once. Uh, but I do remember the one that I wish I could have back. We were playing at McMaster. And we were playing in a semifinal game to play in the gold. And this girl, Julia Chico, is number two. She was a real pain in the butt to play with. And her sister also played. And um, we were in the last minute and we were up by a goal. And um, I fouled her really hard. This was in university, actually. This wasn't when I played club. I fouled her really hard because I wanted her to have to take her time to come up. That's part of the game. There's like a there's like a regular foul and there's a major foul. So basically, a, a regular foul would be you, you kind of you push someone under the water as you're reaching for the ball, and they let go of the ball. It's called a foul. Now you have to give them place to play the ball. Okay. So I fouled her really hard, hard enough that they call it a major foul and give me a penalty. But we're like in the last minute of the game and we're only up by one. So I'm now in a 30-second penalty in the corner and she scores a goal to tie the game. And then they inevitably win in overtime and they play in the gold medal game and we do not. Man. I will always remember that foul. Uh, I broke a Nalgene bottle, which are really hard to break. When we were leaving the changing room that night, I chucked it so hard that it smashed open and i thought you could drive those things over with cars totally (laughs) wow yeah i was pretty upset about that i still am actually (laughs) (laughs) 
Mm. Okay, okay, so you, you're talking about playing in university now, mm-hmm. and uh, so this went on for a long time, your participation in the sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe if you could walk us through a little bit about where you uh, rose to in terms of your uh, your water polo career. Yeah, when I was, le- I guess I went to go live in Ottawa, I was 20 maybe, to go to school. And um, at that point, I had taken a year off of club. I wasn't playing club anymore, and I didn't want to. It was so competitive, and a lot of the girls that I trained with were just at such a high standard. I mean, they were training with a junior national team and training club. Some of them were on scholarships to go to the States and play at UCLA and upstate New York, and um, I just wasn't there. And I didn't have what it took to stay with that regime and I didn't want to deal with the abuse, the verbal abuse. I was just like, it's not fun anymore. So I stopped playing. I took a year off and then I went to school in Ottawa and I was staying in my dormitory in my first year of university. And this girl comes into my room and just trying to starting to get to know people. It's like early in the school year. And we're chatting and chatting. She goes, okay, well, I have to go. I'm going to a meeting for the water polo team. And I said, oh, I used to play water polo. And she goes, really, you should come. And I was like, I don't know about that. She's like, no, no, just come, just come with me. So, okay, so I grab my stuff and follow her to this meeting and I walk into the room and three of the girls sitting in the room are girls who I played club against at Ottawa and they are all burning looking at me because they know exactly who I am because my club was notorious for being really physical and doing really well nationally. So I'm like, oh, well, if I don't play, this practice is going to be fun anyway because it's the they're so mad that I'm even here. It's going to be so much fun. <laughs> so I did this meeting and then I got in the pool and I played and I had a really great practice, probably the best I'd had in years. And uh, I was like, yeah, the coach was so different than the way I had been coached. And he was so kind to us and the swim sets were so much easier. I was like, I could do this. So I started playing varsity for Carleton University in Ottawa and um, I won rookie of the year my first year. And we won a championship that year, and we won a championship the next year. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't make it in our third year. We would have been the first team to three-peat probably in the school's history, but it didn't happen. And then in my fourth year of university, I didn't play. But um, yeah, that was kind of where I stopped. Yeah. Rookie of the year. Rookie of the year. Did you get a trophy? I got a plaque, I think. Awesome. Yeah. Not everybody gets a plaque in life. Know, but what do you do with them? You hang on to it. You show it to your kids. <laughs> you talk about it on a podcast. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I don't you, think I hung on to you, mine. But yeah. You remember it fondly. Yeah, yeah. But that's cool. So in the third year at university, that was when the career was over. Yeah, water I stopped polo. playing after that season. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing all the details about water polo. Is there mm-hmm. anything else to uh, close that section off that you want to mention about uh, water polo to people listening? That it's a great sport. I think it's a great sport, and I think that a lot of the big, especially men in this country, play hockey. Like, we have all this, like, emphasis on hockey and on lacrosse. Yeah. Um, But it's really an incredibly physical and fun sport, and I think that people who love to be in the water should try it because it's tough and fun. Yeah. Well, maybe one last question about that before we jump ahead here. And how did you grow as a person through water polo, would you say, looking back on it now? I think it's, um, this is true for all sports. It's not unique to water polo. Um, and I think when I've been in management positions and I'm interviewing people for jobs, I always like to see that they've played some kind of team sport, uh, at a varsity level or otherwise. Um, if they've consistently played sports, what it teaches you is that you may be working 
together with people who you don't always like or agree with or see eye to eye with, but you have the common goal and you have to get there, whether you like each other or not. And um, I don't know if this is necessarily the same for men's sports. You know, like it teaches you like, yeah, this part's definitely true for all sports. Um, it teaches you uh, dedication. It teaches you to schedule your time. Uh, it teaches you that other people are relying on you to be somewhere. So you have to be there. It teaches you to be dependable. Um, so there's all these things that it teaches you. It teaches you a sense of self pride. And then this, this thing about working sometimes with people you don't like, you know, cause <laughs> girls water polo. <laughs> I think this is probably true for all girls team sports. And I don't know if it's true for guys. There's so much that happens hormonally for a woman, like in her life and in every month and every year and every second of every day. <laughs> That if you put a bunch of like teenage girls together, that much together, they're inevitably going to like squabble and argue. There's going to be, there's always stuff. There's a, an amazing camaraderie that comes from that, mm -hmm. that can last friendships, span decades, the friendships that come from that. Yeah. But it can't be avoided. Those moments of like, I cannot stand you right now. And now I have to get in the pool with you and I have to win this game with you because I can't do it without you. And I think that that applies well in life everywhere for team sports. Yeah. And that's a super interesting point because you mentioned as well, too, like sticking with it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just participating in team sports uh, for a year or two along the way is different than really being with it for a long period of time. Yeah. Good insights, Annette. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so what, uh, what were you doing in university? What uh, mm -hmm. made you wind up going to university and uh, what were you focusing on while you were there? Well, what made me go to university is that my mother always said it really wasn't an option. So <laughs> there's that. You have to go. You don't have a choice. Um, I was studying English literature when I did my college degree. And I had da thought about doing like theater and like getting into musical theater. And I just didn't. I, originally, I was studying science. I was like, I hate this. This is stupid. I switched it to English literature. It was fine. It was whatever. And then when I was looking for universities, I thought it would be great if I could leave Montreal It'd be great if I could find a music program I could get into because I always loved to sing. And at the time I was taking vo vocal lessons and stuff and dabbling a little bit more into it. And so I found out that Carleton U was the only uh, university in Eastern Canada and possibly might have been the only one in the country at this time that you could major in pop music. So music programs are usually either jazz music or classical music. And Carleton had a pop music program. And I was like, I might be able to do that. So I sent in my application and I was given an audition time and I drove to Ottawa and I auditioned, which um, was such a funny experience because I just didn't know. I didn't really know what was expected of me or what it took to get into a music program. And so, you know, they ask you questions. So it, first, you, you sing. So you, I pre had prepared a couple of things, um, basically downloaded like karaoke versions of stuff off Napster so I could sing to the background music. And then they go, okay, well, let's do some sight reading. And I said, what's sight reading? <laughs> like, can you read this sheet of music? And I was like, no. Okay. What about interval training? What's interval training? Because it's very different in water polo. I can tell you that much. Uh, no, I don't know how to do that. Okay. Uh, so where where's your music theory? I don't have any. Okay. Do you play the piano at all? No. Okay. Well, this is a really unusual aud audition. We'll get back to you. And what they decided ultimately was to let me into the program, but that I had to do all this catch-up theory stuff because I didn't have any at all. 
So I did music my first two years of university as my major, and um, I really struggled with it, actually. It was really, really hard coming from behind on all of that stuff. Um, and inevitably, I ended up making music my minor because I had enough credits. And then I did a major in English literature, which was a little bit a cop out because I had so many transferable credits from college that I think I only needed like three classes to get my English literature degree. Okay. Uh, which I struggled with nonetheless, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you said that you, uh, you first got involved with, uh, the music program because you love to sing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does mm-hmm. that go back to the time when you were a small child or yeah. when did that start? Forever. Um, I was referring to coming into this world being loud and naked. I was the loudest kid in the nursery. Um, when I was born, I had like just a set of pipes on me. So they would, when my mom stayed in the hospital for a couple of days after I was born, they'd always drop me off first for feedings because I was so loud that it, they had to. I was hungry and I needed to be fed at that moment. All the other babies are like normal volume and I'm on like an unreadable decibel. Um, I just, I always loved to sing. I remember singing, like I loved Mariah Carey and Janet Jackson and Madonna when I was a kid. I listened to those like, and just so much. And then as I got older, I really got in, I loved the doors and I loved salt and pepper. And I just, I just love to sing. I love listening. I also really like lyrics to music it's not just the singing like i really like vocal complexity but i also really love to dig into good lyrics mm-hmm. and um so much so that in fact i often forget who sings the song or what the name of the song is but i might know all of the words wow because i love it so much <laughs> to sing it i gotta know the words so yeah okay well that's cool because i think that sort of ties in obviously to the uh, english lit side of things right mm-hmm. and so what uh just off the top of your head maybe for people listening what songs sort of stand out in your mind during that time that you really enjoyed the lyrics of because i love the lyrics of songs as well too and i can remember right. back in the day i'd love opening up a cd and flipping through because so often you're listening to music and what the hell are they saying it's so yeah. hard to actually hear and then when you wind up reading it it's like this is amazing poetry Tree. Yeah. But um, any songs in particular that stand out to you that uh, lyrically you loved? Uh, Chantal Kurviazic has this song called Imaginary Friend that I remember really, really liking when I got that album. And I remember learning it from start to finish. And I don't know if it, I, I mean, I had a lot of imaginary friends when I was a kid. And I don't know if that's because my siblings are so much older than me that um, I, I did spend a lot of time playing by myself to an extent. So I had a lot of imaginary friends, including all the Ghostbusters, which was dope. <laughs> and the song kind of harkens back to like wanting it, things to be like simpler, like when you had your imaginary friend. That's kind of the lyrics. And that, that song, I always liked that song. I remember working really hard to learn that song. And when I was a teenager... I remember like the first time I had my heart broken. Uh, Lauren Hill X Factor was another song that I like just loved it and it really spoke to me. And there's been plenty, dozens and dozens of songs over the years that I've like loved and learned from start to finish. But those two kind of like stand out at different points in my life that I was like, I put them on repeat, you know, just because I wanted to learn it and learn the nuances and learn the runs and the things that the people were doing vocally. Did you ever uh, write any songs of your own? Um, when I was a kid, I notoriously would record stuff just like random i would act everything was a song when i was a kid okay. like i'm going to the bathroom <laughs> you know like 
just he's seeing everything. I'm walking to the kitchen. <laughs> just like everything, everything, everything was a song. And I would record myself doing that sometimes, which is so funny because the kid that I live with now does the same kind of stuff. Like sometimes I find videos like on my phone where she'll be like, Can I play with your phone? And then there's like just videos of her giving sass to the camera and singing something that, you know. <laughs> I did the same thing so I just find it so funny that she does that there was this one time the TV's got we have a, like a Roku ad- adapter okay. and the screensaver is just like the word Roku going across the screensaver in different sizes and she's just standing in front of the TV going and you're the biggest and you're the smallest and, you're, and she did that for like 10 minutes just singing to the words on the TV and I thought it was so funny because I was like that but <laughs> Sorry, tell you that whole roundabout to say that I wrote a couple of songs as an adult that I like actually will still dabble in guitar and can sing and play, but ultimately I didn't write a bunch of songs when I was a kid. Everything was a song. Cool. I think it's a great feature. I if, from time to time at work, I'll uh, I'll sing my way through uh, getting a tea or something in the kitchen, and uh, it just makes it way more enjoyable for me and presumably for other people as well too. As long as I don't sound terrible, one hundred percent. Yeah, I mean it's just like the zest of life, having having some fun and uh, being uh, being joyful, mm-hmm. being joyful. So you were taking uh, English literature at uh, a university, and so what was that drew you to that uh i did like to write quite a bit when i was younger and my mom always really encouraged my writing um probably more than any of the other real ventures that i had my mom really thought that i had a potential as a writer and that i was a good writer and i think that she wanted me to become a writer <laughs> and so that um with that sense of confidence i think it seemed natural to me so when it's so interesting because in high school they had an advanced English class, which I was never accepted into. And then I studied English in college and I enjoyed it. I like that literature is a really great, I didn't realize it at the time until I started studying it, but it's just such a great art form in the way that it captures what's happening in a particular time in history, Mm -hmm. because inevitably the writer is influenced by what's happening around them politically and, and and in their environment. And, and I think that it's a great commentary, social commentary, even when it's fiction, you know, the time that something is written, a piece of, of literature can be timeless, but you can't necessarily hide, you know, what's going on in that period of time. And furthermore, that human nature never changes. I remember arguing with my cousin once. He was like, why do they even bother teaching Shakespeare in school anymore? I said, because it's the best snapshot of human nature that all of these emotions of jealousy and love and spite and rage, all this stuff, these complex family issues that come up, that doesn't change from when Shakespeare wrote it to today. And I love that about literature. I think that's how I ended up in it. Were you into Shakespeare before you got into uh, university or did university no. stimulate that within? No. And I, I don't, I wouldn't say necessarily that I'm even into Shakespeare. That's not, you know, it's part of the canon. You inevitably end up reading some Shakespeare if you do any literature at all sure, yeah. in your post-secondary. I don't know. I just think Shakespeare is important. Okay. No. (laughs) Yeah. And and a lot of people do. And uh, and, uh, you're not the only one, definitely. Right. But in in terms of um, what you said earlier about it's a great snapshot of the time. Yeah. That's a super interesting observation. And so 
I want to spend a little bit of time with this because I, I think it's interesting. I've always enjoyed reading and I go through phases and I feel mm-hmm. like I'm back into a phase of reading fiction again and realizing, oh, man, I didn't realize how much I actually missed this, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, reading fiction, there's there's so much in it in terms of uh, what you're able to pull out from what an author is writing about, about a character's uh, experience in the world and how that's relatable to what's going on in my own life at various stages along the way. And for yourself, I just kind of want to know about things that you were able to take away from your experience at school through uh, reading different books that you read along the way or particular authors that you were interested in during that time. Well, I would also like to say this because much like not being a fast swimmer, I was never a super strong reader. Not that I can't digest content. It's that I know people who like just digest books like crazy they're like machines for reading and they read every day I've always had a terrible habit about reading and so in that way some of my studies were challenging for me and I don't know if it's I have a hard time focusing but I would say that don't take everything at face value I think is probably the biggest thing is because someone might be painting a picture with their words that it says something quite literally but they're saying something else behind that and that applies in the real world to people. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm good. Are you good? Does your body say a whole different language? Does the environment say a whole different thing, right? And I think that that's true in literature and that you can't just take for granted that that what you see in front of you is exactly what something is. Um, so that's kind of the thing that I like about literature and it forces you to think. And I found myself in the height of my studies even books I wasn't assigned to read, keeping a highlighter with me and going through or underlying things that I thought not were just interestingly written, but that they clearly could be tied to other theories or other ideas or other authors. I don't know that I have a favorite author, but I like you really love reading fantasy when I do read. Okay. Because I like that it takes me away. You can completely submerse yourself in an entirely different world which is very different than reading like database books or reading poetry or, you know. Are you reading much these days? I'm trying to get a little bit more into it. I'm reading a book right now. I think it's called The Invisible Woman. And it's about um, the lack of uh, data when it comes to women representation in all kinds of things in the world, Um, from the way that we build city infrastructures to transit to the floor space that we give them in bathrooms to the way that we study them in medicine. It's a really interesting book. So I don't know. I think I'm trying to read a little bit more now. Uh, I would like to. I'd like to probably try and set a goal for this year for books because that's something I've never done for myself before. Mm-hmm. I'm in the process of moving. And I think when I move, I want to kind of like build myself a new schedule and within that schedule include a reading time and pick some books that I want to set as goals to read this year. I think it's super important. I saw somebody put up a post post on Facebook and they said their goal last year was to read 40 books and Mm -hmm. they read 57. And I actually found that really inspiring to me that got me uh, reinvigorated in the idea of picking up more books. And I haven't set a specific number for myself, but I really want to read more because I miss it. And I I find it's really difficult these days to – get absorbed in books because I feel like my attention span has greatly decreased. Thanks, smartphone. (laughs) (laughs) 
thank you. And uh, yeah, just as as like even the last two or three years, I feel like it's just accelerated mm-hmm. this inability to concentrate. And I feel like there's such a great power that can be regained by uh, by redeveloping our concentration. Yeah. Yeah, it's in the same vein really as meditation, you know, to be able to sit down and um, really get into a book and not have to like reread the lines over and over again, because you're having a hard time focusing, get into it, get into a rhythm, take something from it. It's a practice. And you have to do it regularly. And you have to, you know, set a time and have a system. Um, And I think that meditations like that, and I think both are equally important. This just occurred to me when you're speaking earlier about seeing what's going on on the surface with individuals versus what their body language is telling you and that being able to take that from reading books and Mm -hmm. so you know the book is saying one thing but there's so much more going on underneath the surface were you able to translate that into your experience of serving uh because Mm -hmm. you know i've never uh worked in the service industry myself but i have gone to restaurants and been served by people so (laughs) as many people have (laughs) right and uh but anyway like i've always found it a really interesting art of uh being a server and having to adapt to different personalities at different tables Right. And do you think that that assisted you in any way being able to interact with the public? Yeah, I'm sure that it has. I think that we're kind of the sum of our parts. So studying literature is part of it. Um, My love of theater is part of it because a lot of it you you act sometimes when you're serving. It's an act. You're Mm. putting on a show. The way that you behave when you walk into the kitchen and something's going wrong out there is very different than the face that you have out there on the floor. Um. I think being the youngest of three, I observed a lot. Like there's lots of things that kind of contribute to that, to in, in, to my personality and being able to do that, do to serve and manage different personality types. Cool. You said you have a love of theater. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm mm-hmm. unaware of this. What is your love of theater? But it's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I did... So in all of my singing about as a kid, I also would like act all of those things out. Like I just, you know, I was just a show kid. I did a, my dad used to sing in a cabaret and one year they gave me a part. I got to sing in it, which was really cool. And um, I did some acting classes when I was younger as well. And I just really loved, I remember watching like musical theater movies, um, really influential ones for me were Chorus Line and The Phantom of the Opera. The Phantom of the Opera was the first one that I, the first live play that I saw on stage or musical that I saw on stage. And I, it blew my mind. Just life changing. I, you know, like I vividly remember the chandelier coming across the theater and crashing onto the stage. And it was such a cool experience for me. I was probably about five or six when my parents took me to see that. Um, and I've just, I've loved that ever since. Love theater ever since. Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. A huge hit back in the day. Huge hit. Yeah. And so this love of theater and uh, what, because I've acted in a few plays and I, I really enjoy the experience of being uh, behind the scenes and being involved in it. And what was it for you exactly that really, uh, really spoke to you in terms of the uh, the world of theater? I guess I just really like attention. I don't know. It's like, it's, no, I think it's fun to like put on a costume and be someone else for however long you know, to get into a character and try and get their psyche and try and convince other people that you are that character. 
because that's the difference, you know, when you go see live theater. There's nobody to say, cut, let's do that again. You have to go through it. And you have to, to really submerse people in that experience, you have to be convincing about who your character is. And when you do that, the joy of that, I think, is knowing what those people get to experience. Like when I've experienced a really great play and it's like nobody else is in the room, you know, like, yes, there's an energy that comes with the theater, but you get so into and invested in the characters and how they develop around you and everything that's happening. It's incredible to submerse yourself to that level watching a play with all of the other stuff that's going on around you. You hmm. could be in a theater with thousands of other people. And and while they give energy, which amplifies the experience, they also don't matter at some point because you're so into it. And I think that that's such a cool thing about theater. What stands out as your uh, most memorable experience on stage in terms of a character that you played or a particular play that you were in? Well, funny story about me and theater is that the last two times that I was cast in something, though neither of those plays were ever actually able to make it to showtime. Come on, what happened? So I was cast in I was cast in a really fun role of Four Weddings and an Elvis for our community theater here on Pender. Sounds awesome. It was gonna be incredible. And then the pandemic hit. We were a week away from dress rehearsal when the pandemic hit and we had to pull the plug. And that was gonna be a really fun one. And in high school I was cast as Rizzo in my graduating year of high school. And I really wanted to play Rizzo. And there was this like extracurricular band from the teachers that year. So all of the extracurricular activities got cut because they were trying to negotiate salaries and stuff so they just weren't doing anything extra mm -hmm. which was really crummy and so then like any of the other theater stuff that I've done a lot of it like I've done some stuff on stage mostly singing stuff on stage uh, and then like probably plays in like elementary school and stuff that I put on we did this Little Women <laughs> this is memorable when I was in acting class we did a bit of Little Women and um, I was so young and I the way I remembered my lines was cued from the person ahead of me's line. Yeah, yeah. But not really, in, I wasn't really invested in what the rest of what was going on. So now if you're 10 and all the other people about you, and that's a really complex, I don't know why they chose Little Women. That was a really silly thing to do with children that age because we're not interested in it. So why would we, you can't remember what's, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> it, was such a, it was a terrible choice for young children for a play. And so um, the people that I'm working with don't necessarily remember their lines exactly. So I'm waiting for a word to cue me and it never happens. You but are I highly dependent on another 10 year old. It was to, terrible. Yeah. It was a really bad experience. And I've always hated the feeling of having like a bad show. I'm really critical of myself as it is. And I remember the feeling of leaving that day. And I remember the feeling of like the people watching and it was in a bright room so we could see them. This is not like on a stage. And I remember being like, I could see these parents being like, Oh my God, I can't believe I pay for these classes. You know, like <laughs> just awful. Yeah. <laughs> Stands out. Man. And you said Rizzo. So is Rizzo, that's a character from Greece. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, yeah, that was the, uh, the antagonist. Uh, mm -hmm. okay. The one who thinks maybe she's pregnant. The bad girl, the bad girl, a bad girl. And you never had a chance to perform that in front of people. No, Darn. I, I really wanted to. You know, one of my favorite things about doing plays is all the rehearsals. 
that yeah. the camaraderie that you build yeah. with people who are in uh, the play with you, man, it's it's almost as if it's very anticlimactic doing the show itself. And that uh, when I look back on the experiences, it's like, oh man, all those rehearsals with those people, that was great. Yeah. yeah and then you do the show and it's just done. Yeah. 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 And it's sad. It's like, it's over already? Darn. Yeah. yeah. But uh, that's cool. Are you going to be doing any more plays in the future? Do you think if something comes up? I may. We'll see. Okay. Yeah. I, I, if, how did I even get roped into that doing for Elvis or Four Weddings and an Elvis? I think Tammy and Matt from the Kraken Theater were yep. doing it. And they reached out to me and asked if, because they had done during the pandemic. No, that was afterwards, I guess. I don't know. I guess they reached out to me. And then maybe they reached out to someone else who I knew. And they... I just kind of was like, I guess, yeah, why not? I haven't dabbled in this in a long time. That would be fun. And then they did like a virtual play during the pandemic that people could buy electronic tickets for. And it was all done. Like it was a Zoom customer service Zoom play, which was fun. We we all tried during those days to mm-hmm. come up with novel things to mm-hmm, keep mm-hmm. each other motivated with yeah. life. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I see something happening for you in the future. For, I can I can imagine you being on stage. I can picture yeah. it for some reason right now. I will be in the show that's happening in February, that night show that Jamie McLean is putting on. Oh, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. It's a late night talk show yeah. theme. The last one was a lot of fun, and I did a lip sync battle against Jenny Montgomery, and we are having a rematch. Damn, who won? Hard to, uh, the audience, or the, I think Jamie said it was a tie. The audience had cheer. It's hard to tell when the yeah. audience does the cheering sometimes. You need a meter to make it official. It's right? hard to Right, so really they just said tie. So <sighs> rematch. Man, I don't want to see another tie. No. Yeah. I want to see a clear clear winner. winner. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, do you know what song you're doing? I haven't right. decided. I have some ideas, though. Okay. All right. Sounds like you want to keep it under wraps. Yeah. It's got to gotta have shock effect, you know? Okay. Uh, well, what else is going on in your life right now? And that is you uh, made a career change. And so you have become... Annette, the real estate agent? Annette, the real estate agent. Okay. Yeah. So what made you decide to uh, make the leap into becoming a real estate agent? Um, well, I moved away from hospitality to some extent when the pandemic hit. Yeah. I mean, I never really moved fully away from it, but I did. And then I was working in construction. And a dear friend of mine who lives on the island who is a realtor, uh, Greg Rowland, had been kind of for a few years now saying, you should get your license. You should get your license. I'll be your mentor. Let's do it. And then finally, during the pandemic, I just decided one day I took my trusty old credit card out of my wallet and I got on the UBC website and I registered for the course. And uh, like everything else with school with me, dragging my feet and really hating deadlines, I had to extend my deadline twice on my course because I just wasn't done the assignments. And then I uh, wrote the exam and passed it last May. And then I got my license in the summer. And now I'm working as a realtor. Congratulations. Thank you. Right on. Yeah. Uh, What is that like going through the training to become a real estate agent? It's tough. Yeah. The coursework is reasonable, but the material is really dry. It's really dense. There's a lot of legal stuff. The textbook is huge. It's like three or three and a half inches thick. It's this giant mammoth of a book that weighs like seven pounds. (laughs) It feels like it's huge. So it's a lot. It's a lot of course material. And then um, the exam is really challenging. A lot of people don't pass it on their first try. Um, And then if you fail it a second time, you have to take the course over. What? Yeah. So it's pretty arduous to get through. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I have persevered. So that's great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
It's a, it's a cool, and then you get through the course and there's like still so much to learn because every property is unique and every seller and buyer are unique. And within that comes new circumstances and new, I don't know, fires to put out or things to figure out, puzzles to solve to make it work for everybody. So especially living in the Gulf Islands, it has its own set of different rules. We'd be to the beat of our own drum here on the Gulf Islands. Mm, what do you mean? Um, there's a lot of um, a lot of red tape to build here, which is a thing that you buyers really need to be aware of. A lot of uh, protected areas, so development permit areas, you know, because we really value our environment and what we do with it. So that makes things a little bit more challenging. Then, of course, on the Gulf Islands, most people are on either well or septic or both, um, which has its own set of like issues and inspection stuff that you really have to do your due diligence before, you know, before moving forward with a deal. So there's just all kinds. There's just all kinds of stuff, you know, to learn and go through and do research on. And one of the things that I've realized is that no matter how long you've been at this for, and I've talked about this with other colleagues in my office. There's always something that's new, a new challenge to overcome with every deal, even after years. There's always something. That's exciting. It is. Well, it is because if you like to learn and you like to be challenged and you don't want to be bored because, you know, I've worked like desk jobs before and I've worked in sales before. And sometimes you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. It's not, I don't think that's good for your brain or your body or your soul. Mm. So it's nice that you get challenged when you're working in this industry. Yeah, definitely. No, you actually strike me as somebody who uh, who likes a challenge. I do like a challenge. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we're going to uh, slowly wind this up here. But uh, before we do, I just want to ask, is there anything that we uh, we didn't cover in this uh, interview that uh, you might want to share with people listening and Pender and beyond? Just don't tell my mom that they call me loud and naked. Well, <laughs> I, I don't think I have a say in that. I, th- I, I think you have to make sure your mom doesn't hear this. That's That's the only way. <laughs> Yeah. And your parents still live in Montreal? Yeah, they're there. Um they're there in the summer months, like spring through early fall, and now um they winter in Arizona. My brother and his wife bought a, a income property and um they decided to offer it up to my parents in the winter months because they were going to Florida and it's just better for them to be close to family. So Okay. Now they winter in Arizona. <laughs> Sounds great. Doesn't it? I want to retire. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'll figure out how to afford it later. <laughs> I've retired. Yeah. Well, you got a lot of experiences uh, up ahead with uh, working in real estate, and I'm That's sure it. there's there's going to be like a lot of great times. That's it. For it. Annette, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Oh, boy. I wasn't kidding about all the laughter. Wasn't that great, Annette? She's great. Thank you again to Annette for doing that, and thank you for sticking around to the end of the episode and listening. Greatly appreciated. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd want to hear more, as I mentioned off the top, there's lots of different ways to follow. There's a whole set of links at the bottom of this episode where you can find ways to subscribe to this podcast if you want to stay up to date with future episodes. I'd like to say thank you to Ben McConkie for providing the theme music to this podcast. And again, thank you for listening. Until next time.